6. John's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm just reading two verses, verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> so, verse 8 and 9, <coughs> excuse me, of John's Gospel, chapter 6. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Little is much when God is in it. That's the title this morning. Little is much when God is in it. And because that story is so familiar to just about everyone in here, uh, and because it's not my subject, the feeding of the 5,000 per se, uh, I just want to have read those two verses and interject that thought into your mind this morning that little is much when God is in it. Five little barley loaves, two small fishes, 5,000 men besides women and children. What are they among so many? A very natural way to look at it, isn't it? A very logical way to look at it. But whenever God's involved, then little is much when God is in it. In Matthew chapter 10, which you don't need to turn to, verse 40 and 42, Jesus said, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say unto you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Little is much when God is in it. Just a cup of cold water only. But you shall not lose your reward. Now in 1 Kings, and I want you to go to this, chapter 17. You remember Elijah, the great prophet, had proclaimed a drought in the land where it would not rain for three years. And God sent him to the brook Kerith, uh, where there every day the ravens would come and feed him with bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. How many people know that ravens are carrion birds? So guess where they got their meat from? <laughs> How would you like to be eating that? But if all is received with grace, <laughs> then God will bless it. And so he was there for a while until the brook began to dry up. And then God said, I want you to go to Zarephath, for there I have commanded a widow woman to feed you. Now I would imagine, because Elijah was a man of like passions as we are, the Bible says, I would imagine he would think to himself, well, things are looking up. I mean, this is bound to be better than ravens coming with bread and flesh in the morning and evening. 
This would be better than the brook drying up. A widow woman, no less, is going to take care of me. And I'll probably no longer have to do my washing in the stream. A widow woman will do my washing for me. And she'll probably have a lovely big house. And there'll be a beautiful room for me. And there might be a nice chair out in the veranda where I can watch the sun go down in the western sky in the evening. I can imagine he would think all of these things. But whenever he got there, look what it says. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. That doesn't look too good. Sure it doesn't. Not a good sign. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, I got these teeth in again. As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. That must have been a big disappointment. But little is much when God is in it. And I happen to think that God was just as interested in this little widow woman as he was in the great prophet Elijah. And God knew she had nothing. And God knew that if he had sent the prophet to her, even though initially it may seem like a big disappointment, that once God got involved, things were going to dramatically change for this little woman, of course. And so what happened? Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Little is much when God is in it. Second Kings chapter 4. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but... A jar of oil. She was down to the last little jar of olive oil. It's all that she had. Not much. But little is much when God is in it. 
He said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors and empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. And she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were filled that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. And so the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live of the rest. Didn't take much for God to work with. Sure it didn't. It just took faith and obedience. And once he had those two ingredients to work with, then everything and anything is possible. Don't turn to this. Second Kings 5.2 <clears throat> And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. A little maid. We're going to come back to that little maid in a few moments. Because what a difference God made with that little servant, that little mate. You remember Gideon in Judges 6, how the Lord came to him, the angel of the Lord, and said, you're a mighty man of valor. And he was hiding, threshing out corn and the wine fat from the Midianites. And in Judges 6, 15 and 16, here's what he said. So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Little is much when God is in it. Remember in 1 Samuel 16, whenever the great prophet Samuel, God lifted off his anointing and his kingship from Saul and how he told Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king over Israel. And then how he went and Jesse brought out all his sons, at least seven of them before Samuel. And Samuel thought the first one, Eliab, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, but it wasn't. And he went through them all. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? He said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. The runt of the litter. A wee boy out keeping the sheep. But little is much when God is in it. Isn't that right? And he says, Bring him to me. And when David appeared before him, that was God's choice. Even though he was small, even though he was young, even though he was the youngest in the family, but that was God's choice. And then, of course, whenever the battle was in array with the Philistines and Israel at the valley of Ephes Damon, and how that Goliath was coming out and shaking his big fist at them for 40 days, and then David comes on the scene. In 1 Samuel 17, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he a man of war from his youth. You're just a wee boy. 
Don't you know that giant, from the day he was a boy your size, he was trained to be a warrior? Look at him. He's nine feet tall. You're just a wee lad. There's no possibility that you could ever defeat him. But he was wrong, because little is much when God is in it. And that wee boy did defeat the great giant, didn't he? Because we know the end of the story. So where are you today? What is little in your life that could be much when God gets involved? What is little in your life today that could be much with God's help? You say, well, David, I, I have little talent. I have little talent. Do you know that most Christians greatly underestimate the God-given abilities that they have got. Greatly underestimate it. Oh, there are a few who are be proud and arrogant and full of themselves. But the vast majority of believers are not like that. If anything, we're the opposite. But little is much when God is in it. The great orchestral conductor, Sir Michael Costa, one time he was practicing with his great orchestra and in the middle of this piece, when the cymbals were clashing and the trumpets were sending forth and the strings were resounding and they had risen to a great crescendo and the midst of all, he stopped it and he shouts, where's the piccolo? <laughs> the piccolo player had stopped playing. He thought, what's the point? I can't compete with the drums and the trumpets and the violins. I'm just a piccolo. And he stopped playing. But when it came to the part where he should have been playing, that great conductor who knows every single note in the score, who knows where every single instrument's to come in, he noticed that the piccolo hadn't come in and he stopped it. Where's the piccolo? And you today may feel I'm just a piccolo. I have little talent. I can make little difference. What is the point? But the great conductor, he listens and he watches and he hears because he knows what every instrument should be playing. And he knows when we're playing our part and when we're not playing our part because he listens and he watches. And so maybe you're feeling today, I, I have little talent, but, and maybe that's true, maybe you have just a little talent. But you can use it for God's glory. And God wants you to use it for his glory. Sometimes we may say, well, I, I have little resources. I, I have just meager resources. And we conclude that our contribution uh, would be so little that it would make no difference whatsoever. We look at our five barley loaves and two small fishes and say, but what are they among so many? Or we say, I, I've just got a little meal in a bar. I've just got a little oil in a cruise. In fact, I don't even have that. I've only got a cup of cold water. That's all I've got.
And when the Philistines came and the Spirit of God came on Shamgar, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. These were trained warriors, heavily armed soldiers. And all he had was a big stick with a point at the end of it, but he killed 600 with it. Because little is much when God is in it. Samson was out one day and he came across a lot of Philistines and he was itching to go to war with them. But he had no weapons. So he looked around to see what he could use and there was a jawbone of a donkey. <laughs> That's all he had, a jawbone of a donkey. And he slaughtered them hip and thigh till there was a thousand Philistines lying dead on the ground with the jawbone of a donkey. Little as much of God is in it. Gideon had only 300. God whittled them down to 300 men only against the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of the enemy, the Midianites. But with those 300 men, he slaughtered them. Little as much when God is in it. You say, I've got little talent, David, and I've little resources, or maybe you say, well, I've little opportunity. Maybe you think, well, I have little opportunity to influence others for God. I'm not like you and can preach and visit people and go places and do stuff. And I'm not like other people. I just don't have the same opportunity. You see, I'm not in contact with many people anymore. I'm not in the workplace anymore. I'm a pensioner. I'm retired. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a neighbor? Does the postman deliver your mail? Do you have any family? Any relatives? What about your doctor? Or your nurse? You see, it's surprising what influence we could have if we use it. Evelyn today, who's not with us because her dear sister has died, just a lot of days ago took the bull by the horns and even though she couldn't speak anymore but she could squeeze her hand, she understood what she was saying. And in front of her family, most of them are not believers. She explained the way of the Lord and the gospel and asked her to pray the sinner's prayer. And she prayed that prayer in her heart because at the end of it she squeezed her hand to acknowledge that. Sometimes you just have to do things. Sometimes you just have to take whatever opportunity there is, whatever influence you can use to win people to Christ or at least to sow some seed in their lives or do something. 
In Acts chapter 16, there's that wonderful event regarding Paul and Silas. You remember how they got the Macedonian call and they went over to Philippi and they met Lydia down at the river? And then how they were arrested and beaten and whipped, threw into jail. It tells us they were put into the inner prison and held in stocks, chained in a dark hole of a dungeon. And it tells us in the story, verse 25 of Acts 16, that at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing psalms to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now put yourselves in their position just for a moment. You've just been whipped. Your back is raw flesh. You're aching. You've been despised, rejected, hated, beaten, jailed. You're in stocks, so you can't do anything. It's darkness all around you. For all you know, you're going to be executed the next day. What possible influence could you have over anybody? And I can imagine maybe Paul turning to Silas and said, Silas, do you know what? Here we are, and we really should be rejoicing. That would be the last thing you and I would think of, wouldn't it? We really should be rejoicing, we, because we have been counted kind of worthy to suffer shame for His name. We have been counted kind of worthy to be beaten for Christ's name. We should be rejoicing. What was that wee chorus you were singing the other day, said as we walked along the road? I can imagine Paul saying this. What was that wee chorus you were singing? Or what was that psalm you were singing? Let's, let's start to sing that. Sure, what have we got to lose? Sure, we're in here in the dark. They're probably all in bed upstairs sleeping anyway, those prisoners. We're the only ones chained up here. And so they began to pray and they began to sing and it got louder and louder and louder to everybody in the jailhouse was listening. Woke the whole lot up. And then suddenly, what does it say? Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prisons awakened from his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself because if you were the jailer and you lost the prisoners, you died. That was the law. And Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed God in God with all his household. Little is much when God is in it. Just by singing those songs and praying those prayers brought an earthquake to that jail and brought a jailer to his knees. And that jailer gets saved. 
And lo and behold, the first church in Europe grew out of that incident. The first church in Europe grew out of that. And you and I are sitting here today as a result of what happened in that jail that night. Paul and Silas never really realized the influence that that had, not only for that day and that hour and that jail, but for eternity, for centuries, for two millenniums. You see, little is much when God is in it. I'm going to go back just for a moment to 2 Kings chapter 5. Remember the little maid? 2 Kings 5 verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out in raids and had brought back captive a young girl or a little maid, I think the King James says, from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, on what basis did she say that? Because up to this point, only two people were ever healed of leprosy, recorded in the Bible, Moses and Sister Miriam. So what basis did she say that? She had great trust in this prophet, hadn't she? She knew that mighty miracles had happened through his ministry. If only my master were the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus saith the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then a king of Assyria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he departed and took with him all these goods and silver and oxen and cattle and all the rest of it. Went to the king of Israel, and to cut that long story short, you know, the king of Israel was frightened because he thought this was a trap. And he sent him to the prophet. He sent him to the prophet Elisha. And when he went to the prophet Elisha, he thought that the prophet would make a great showing because this is a five-star general. This is the second most important man of all Syria. This is the man on whom the king of Syria leaned upon. This is the man that came with a great retinue. This is the man that came with great wealth. Surely the prophet will come out and he'll make a great showing because of me. The prophet didn't even go out the door. The prophet sent his helper out to talk to him. And the helper says, the prophet says, go down to the Jordan, dip into there seven times, and you'll be cleansed. You'll be well. And he was mad. <laughs> he was raging, we would say. How dare this man? Does he not know who I am? He wants me to go and wash that old dirty Jordan River. Is there not better rivers in my home place? And he, and he was raging, he was. And he took off in a huff. And then one of the servants said, You know, if he'd asked you to do a hard thing, you'd have done it, wouldn't you? He's just asked you to do a simple thing. Why didn't you go ahead? Just go ahead and try it. I mean, what do you got to lose? Go ahead. 
And he went ahead and he dipped down. And the seventh time he came up and he had skin like a baby's bottom. <laughs> totally and completely and instantly cleansed of leprosy. Now, why am I telling you that? That all began with that little maid, didn't it? That little seemingly uninfluential little slave girl. Probably Naaman didn't even... You know, he brought her back as a gift to his wife, as they would often do, those warlords. He certainly wouldn't know her name, would have absolutely zero interest in her. He'd never be at home much anyway. It was his wife's business. But that little maid, that little slave girl, made such a difference to this man's life. Here's what it says, verse 14. Now he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Can you imagine that? What a radical change has come into this pagan general's life. This is a man who worshipped gods from the day he was born. He didn't know there was the true and living God. But that one little girl, that wee slave girl, put that seed into his mind and he went before God. He got his miracle and now he's radically changed. Yet he says, in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there. And he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, they, the Lord, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. You see, it's amazing the influence that you can have that you don't think you have. Just by a word in season. You know, sometimes just talking to somebody, you can just drop a word in there, or a scripture, or encouragement, and it can be the start of a change of somebody's life. Somebody spoke to us, didn't they? Somebody influenced us somewhere. Yes, people prayed, we know that. Yes, maybe we're at a service and somebody preached. But long before any of that, somebody somewhere influenced us for Christ. And maybe they didn't even realize it at the time. Maybe we saw the way they lived. We watched how they walked before God and we thought, that person's different. That's the real deal there. That person's genuine. And that influenced us for good, didn't it? But then sometimes... We little value our worth in Christ. 
We little value our worth in Christ. We may indeed have little talent. We may indeed have little resources. For sure we may have little opportunity. But none of those things, none of those things should we find our identity in. Our identity is in Christ alone. You see, if we find our identity in those things, we'll be forever trying to find our identity. Because somebody else will be greater resources and greater talent and greater opportunity. What's going to happen to our identity then? But if our identity is in Christ, that is the main things. Our worth in Christ is not valued by those things. Our worth in Christ is valued by the fact that Christ loved us enough to die for us. That's where our value is. And once you begin to realize that is where my value is, that's who I am. Yes, there'll be opportunity. Yes, we'll have some resources. Yes, there is a talent. And yes, we'll use all of that to the best of our ability. But our value is found in Christ. See, Christ values us not for what we can do for him, but because of what we are in him. We are his sons and daughters. We are his spiritual offspring. <laughs> That's where our value is. He values us. Are we worth it? Are we worth it? Evidently, he thought so. Because he went to the cross to die for us. Should that make us proud and puffed up? No, not at all. In fact, it should humble us. Because before we ever knew him, while we were yet in our sins, while we were still rebels against him, he loved us and he died for us. When there was nothing lovely or lovable about any of us, Christ died for us. And once you realize that, that it's not what I can do. Yes, we can do things, and yes, we ought to do things for God's kingdom, but it's not what I can do. It's who I am. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. He paid the price for me. He bought me. He made me his own. And once you realize that, that's your identity. And so no matter what you may feel, and what others may think, little is much when God is in it. Before you and I ever did one single thing for his kingdom and for him, he set his love upon us. Most of us, as believers, suffer from inferiority. Most of us. And that's the truth of it. Yes, there may be our moments we get a little bit proud. Or there may be some Christians who are full of pride, but most of us, most of the time, suffer somewhat from inferiority. We feel inadequate. We feel less ourselves than we ought to feel that we're in Christ and so forth. And it becomes very negative and very destructive. Eleanor Roosevelt said that nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. 
And that's the truth, isn't it? And Moses, after 40 years of being a prince in Egypt, <laughs> and Emily decided they'd no longer be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he killed that Egyptian, and he ran, and he ended up in the backside of the desert for the next 40 years, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And by the time God came to him, and he's 80 years old, all that superiority that he may have had when he was a prince was long since gone and now he's full of inferiority. And God comes and tells him he's going to raise him up to be a great deliverer. And you know the story which we're not going to go into. When God told him that, then all the excuses began to come out. Lord, you know I'm not a very good speaker. You know I'm a man of stammering lips. And you know, Lord, that well, who am I that I can go to Pharaoh? I mean, I'm a shepherd in the backside of the desert, you know. And all the excuses, all that inferiority was coming out. All those feelings, all that negativity was coming out. But when you know the story, you know that God didn't let him off the hook. Sure, he didn't. He says, all right, if you can't talk, your brother can talk for you, but you're going. <laughs> And you're not going in your name, you're going in my name anyway. Say, I am has sent you. When they ask who sent you, say, I am. I am one of the great names of God. Because little is much when God is in it. So what have you got today? Just a little? Small? How do you feel today? Small? Little is much when God is in it. And God can take your smallness God can take your little resources, that one talent you may have, and God can use it for his glory. He really, truly can. You say, David, I wish I was better educated. I wish I had a nicer sounding voice. I wish I was a great singer. I wish I could sing like Hannah. I wish I could play like Johnny. I wish I could do all those things. God's got a Hannah, he's got a Johnny, he's got a David, he's got a Clifford, he's got all of those. He's got you. You're the one with that one talent. You're the one maybe with that little resource, but you're the one he wants to use for his glory. And he can and he will if you let him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we'd never understand in a million years why you died for us. Somehow or other in your great love and your mercy and your grace, you decided that we were worth dying for. And we can't understand why. But we're grateful. And we accept it by faith. And we thank you for that. Bless you that you set your love upon us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. We love you because you first loved us. And so we take these moments and we give you thanks for who you are. Lord, help us not to make excuses. But whatever we have, great or little, Lord, may we lay it on the altar. Said it, the old song says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So we give you thanks. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.